Good morning again. If you would please turn to the lyrics of Psalm 19. We're continuing throughout the fall going through Psalms. We'll be reading it as I am preaching and teaching each section this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you. And as we sang, where else shall we go to learn what to think, how to think, and how to pray? But your word, and this morning particularly your word, through your servant, King David, let us feel what he felt. Let us love what he loved. To the glory of your wonderful, fatherly, loving kindness to our souls through Jesus Christ. Amen. So as you can see in Psalm 19, as it begins, David says, take these lyrics and give them to the music leader. So he can put them to some kind of a melody, a song, so that it can get drilled into the people's hearts. What? Drill into their hearts the reality of general revelation. In all creation where God has revealed himself. And then, even more importantly, the second section. Drill into their hearts where God has specifically and with special revelation revealed himself in the words of Scripture which then leads David and God's people to heart-searching prayer. So, why sing songs like this? It's for the goal of the last verse, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. So look at it, what you have before you on a page. That's why, it's, that's why it's a good thing to have a page. You see the whole thing. But you don't have to. I know the age in which we live. But verses 1 to 6, what he does there is he, he's saying that the creation is, is lifted up, it's exalted as a servant, as a, as a pitcher that just pours out the knowledge of the glory of God. And then, in verses 7 to 10, he, he transitions to, there's something even far better than that. And that's God's verbal communication 
in human grammar and syntax, clauses, paragraphs. And then those two great gifts of God, general revelation and special revelation, lead us to expressing our deepest need for God's work on our souls in verses 11 to 13. So, first, let's go to the first section, verses 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So David says, look up. Look up at the stars and the galaxies and the planets and the moon at night. And feel the warmth and the heat of the sun and see from its light during the day. And what do you hear? If you have ears to hear. The answer is you hear and see the glory of God. He says the heavens and all creation is constantly preaching a message. And the message is the artist of all of this is God. The creator. The beginner of it all. Now, that glory of God, that glory is the Hebrew word here, kavod, which, which has to do with weight, weightiness, in other words. Weightiness in the sense of that's heavy. I mean, that's important. That's, Im that's impressive. And glory can also refer to evidence. In other words, the outward display that, that goes forth, that de declares the glory, uh, the heaviness of, or that importance going outward. L like the sun up there declares its glory by, by its rays. Coming out, we feel it, though we're not there at the sun. We, we, we see from its effect, and it points back to the glory of that sun. So the preaching of nature that we all live in and are a part of, it goes on. 
day after day after day, preaching, God is, and he is, I, not in the way that we butchered this word, but he is all, awesome, important, weighty. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. So David, he's going to go on and get to this book of the Bible in verses 7 to 10. But at this point, David's making it clear that the scriptures are not necessary to know that God exists. This is why I remember a few years ago, obviously while he was still alive, Dennis Prager had Charles Krauthammer Many of you know him, you would listen to him and read his stuff. He was, I think, worthy of reading. He had a lot of common sense, very bright man, a secular man, non-religious man, uh, an agnostic. And so on that radio program, when, when Dennis asked Charles Krauthammer what he thought about atheism, here's his response, quote, I believe atheism is the least plausible of all theologies. There are a lot of wild ones out there. But the one that's so contrary to what is possible is atheism. The idea that all this universe always existed or created itself ex nihilo out of nothing that's a violation of human rationality. Because he's an honest, bright man. And that's what David is telling us. To be a human being in this creation, in this world, a human being, meaning a creature who has the capacity to reason and the ability to commit moral and immoral acts. To be that human being is to be accountable before God to know, to know that He exists and that He should be thanked for all His goodness because the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above, it's proclaiming to everybody his handiwork. And therefore, even the wickedest persons on earth, they know the truth. They can't avoid the evidence, even though they do everything they can in self-denial. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it when he's ready to go in and say, here's the full-blown essence of Christianity. He begins it this way in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness push down, suppress the truth. For what I, Paul, mean is this. What can be known about God? It's plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. What I mean is this. God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, they have been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world. Seen in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And that's what David means in verse 4. When he says, their voice, it goes out through all the earth in their words to the end of the world. And then he gets poetic. And he says this, in them, God has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Look at the sky and you see the sun and over the sun, here's his imagination, is this tent. And every day it comes up on one end and it goes over and underneath that tent and goes down again and again and again. And you feel its warmth. In 1300 to 1400 B.C., that is stunning. Because that's not how paganism would speak. That is not how, in other words, many gods ism would speak of the sun. The sun was for many of these different pagan religions a god. Like in Egypt, the sun was the god Ray. In Mesopotamia, the sun was Shamash, the god of justice. But here, the sun is simply the one true god's design and gift to the human race. And it's evidence of God's existence. And so David tells us the universe that he made pours out the knowledge of God's glory to everybody. But then God's speaking in intelligible human language. It's not necessary to have that to know He exists. But for Him to speak and reveal reality and truth, ultimately in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is necessary for salvation and for Christian growth. It's necessary for deep, ongoing, 
communion with this God. And that's his point now in verses 7 to 10. Let's read it. The law of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The rules of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Spend a few minutes. Let's go down into the trees of the forest and pull it out. What's he saying? Notice first that he uses the personal name of God six times. In Hebrew, okay, God is translating the Hebrew word Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Or like verse 1 here, declares the glory of Elohim. But what he uses now is the, not Elohim, the personal name of God, Yahweh, which drives home the point. We're not merely speaking about the God of all creation. But we're speaking about the covenant God who is very near and present with his people. He has drawn us near to his word. Remember how God revealed this back in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses, starting in verse 13. Then Moses said, to Elohim at the burning bush. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, Elohim, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And Elohim said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to the, to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. These four Hebrew letters. We call it the Tetragrammaton. That's why when you look down at your Bible and you see the word Lord, all four letters are capitalized. It means the Hebrew word behind that is this word. If you put the vowels in those four letters, you can come out something like Yahweh or the old through German, that's how it happened, Jehovah. Say to the people of Israel, 
Yahweh, the God or Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. And in verse 7 and 9, David describes then, starting off the nature of God's, Yahweh's, written word. First with this Hebrew word, Torah, which we get the translation, law. The Torah of the Lord. It's referring to the first five books of Moses specifically. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We got through Greek and into Christianity. We call those five books the Pentateuch, Pent five, the five books. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And he says, the Torah of Yahweh is perfect. It's flawless. It offers everything you need for what? Look at it. To restoring life to you. Reviving the soul. That's the same Hebrew word as that most popular of all Psalms, 23, verse 3. He revives or restores my soul. The Word of God invigorates, David says, my soul, my being. From what? From being downcast to enlivened. Next, he says there in verse 7, the testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. Now, that word testimony, that is the same word that refers to the Two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments on them. Just, just briefly from Exodus 31 and then 32. He gave to Moses the two tablets of, here it is, here's the word, the testimony. Tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. The testimony of the Ten Commandments, David says, is rock solid. No pun intended. They're sure, is what he says. Making Wise, the simple. The warnings of God's word are exactly what the simple person needs. Because simple here, it means naive. It means inexperienced, which makes the simple oblivious to danger. Then you usher in the testimony. You usher in the Ten Commandments, 
And he says, the simple become wiser. That same word for simple is used in Proverbs 14 this way. The simple believes everything, but the prudent, that means the wise person, gives thought to his steps. One who is wise fears and turns away from evil. But a fool is reckless and careless. The warnings of Scripture put in place, in other words, certain safeguards that keep us from ruining our lives. They make us wiser than we were before delving into God's Word. Verse 8, the precepts. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. That Hebrew word, precepts, carries this, a distinctive note of authority. The, the Hebrew root of that word has to do with what is appointed, what, what is dictated. And therefore, Yahweh dictates they must be kept. They must be kept because God appointed it. Psalm 119 verse 4 says, You have commanded your, here's the word, same word, You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. So, if one just in the heart, Goes around thinking, no, God, that's just too blasted authoritative. It's too dogmatic about what is right and what is wrong. Who do you think you are? The sovereign over the universe? The boss of me? The answer to that question is yes. And He's absolutely right in his decrees. But now, notice there what is so miraculous. Take that just, that's why I'm pausing, just take it. What's so miraculous about that, the God who says this, not that. Go this way, not that way. Truth is this. He's a dictator, a glorious one. And the miracle is that for David and for any born-again person, that very authoritative reality makes their hearts joyful. The precepts of Yahweh are right. Rejoicing the heart. To those outside of Christ, the idea that God's commands and His precepts and His authoritative, sovereign will over all things, to, to them, which is it's just drudgery, it's burdensome. But when they look 
at times at God's people. That that God of the Bible who, who dictates and has rules, get to that in a second, that that inspires within Christians joy, it baffles their minds. Like it baffled our minds before we were in Christ. Then David says, look, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now, commandment, it's a mitzvot. It's, it's in the singular here, which is David's way of referring to the sum and the totality of Yahweh's commands. And he says, all of them, it's all pure. It's without imperfection. It's, with, it's without pollution. And its effect upon David and all believers is that the commandment gives light to the eyes. We see more clearly. Thus we trust more deeply. As Paul said, faith comes and grows and develops by hearing and hearing and hearing, seeing the word of the Lord. Now notice in verse 9, the pattern, it changes. Verses 7 and 8, he keeps describing God's written word with law and testimony and precept and commandment. And now, the beginning of verse 9, the fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. So instead of using another synonym for God's written word, David brings in the attitude and the disposition that the word, that the scripture produces in a person's life. Fear. And he says that fear is clean. Now, in the context, the Hebrew Scripture, for David, a Jew, clean, clearly is supposed to bring to mind ceremonial law of what is clean, what is unclean. And what clean means is what is acceptable in the presence of God. David says, this fear of Yahweh is acceptable. That is, in other words, this holy, trusting fear of God. So as Paul says to all of us Christians, work out your own salvation with fear. And trembling. What are you saying? God's law, His Ten Commandments, His precepts, His dictates of who He is, the law of Moses is, as a whole, the commandment, they all bring the grace which produces a holy fear, which springs from a heart of Faith, trust. It goes something like this. 
this fear, I think. Wow. That's a fearful thing. If God were not producing in me a soul revival, wisdom, a joyful heart, eyes to see in response to his word, if he were not causing me to respond with a heart of faith and love toward God in his word and what he says and his warnings in what he says, that's a, that, that would be terrible. Don't want to go that route. Because he's so good. His mercy is so sweet. David will get there in a second. The fear of Yahweh, he says. Now, that, that fear, that goes on forever. It never goes out of date. Then he says in verse 9, the rules of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. He says, God's rulings, okay, what, what is it? Here, it's, it's his particular applications of, of the commands in particular situations. So like if you take Proverbs, for instance, well, got that, but okay, I, I got the wisdom there. How does that apply here in, in my life? So for instance, in Exodus, the, the, the Ten Commandments are given in Exodus chapter 20. The next three chapters, God gives specific rules, applications of those commandments in differing circumstances. That's why the very beginning of chapter 21 of Exodus begins this way. Now these are the, and here's the same Hebrew word, these are the rules that you shall set before them. Alright, let's come out of the trees. Move back. Get in a helicopter and look down at the forest. Because that now is really what David's main point is. He, he's built this totality, this, this large picture of the Lord's reliable, soul-reviving, joy-causing word that is meant now to hit us so strongly and personally, that we say something like verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold. Even the best gold, much fine gold, and not only sweeter, Sweeter is what we just saw about God's word. Sweeter also than honey. And the drippings of the honeycomb. David, by the Holy Spirit, does not want us to just examine the meaning of God's word like we just did, but he wants us to experience it like I must have it. And that right there is one of the foundational main signs of a person becoming 
a Christian. When God said, when he created the heavens and the earth, let light shine out of darkness. When that same God personally shines the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that person becomes like David. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter to me than honey. And the drippings of the honeycomb. And it's more stark than that, actually, in the original. Desire, it's a good word, but the Hebrew word is literally the word covet. It's the same word used of the 10th commandment. Thou shall not covet. Now, covet doesn't merely mean, I have a desire for this. Well, that person has a nice wife. I wish, I desire a wife. That's not what covet is. Covet means, I want your wife. And I want your car. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to do what I can do to actually get that. It's the same word that describes Eve when she coveted the wisdom that the fruit would bring her. There's a sinful coveting. And David says, there's a holy Coveting. A holy, I must have that. What he just described to us. Jesus had that coveting. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God in holy. Scripture. William Tyndale had that coveting back in the 1500s. He was the first person to translate the Hebrew and Greek straight from the Bible into the English language because he experienced it as more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey. And his theology got him arrested and tried and convicted and imprisoned awaiting execution in 1535. And winter was coming and so he wrote a short note to the warden pleading that he could get a warmer hat and a warmer coat in a lamp so he could see at night in his cell. But then he concluded it with these exact words. But above all, 
I entreat and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the guard that he may kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible. He was covetous. He was put to death a year later. But he coveted the Bible. All believers should be as desperate as Tyndale and David. If God in his grace has stooped to us to speak clearly in human language, in nouns, verbs, and adjectives, participles, and purpose clauses, in inferential sentences that are all contained in Scripture, then we who say we believe in Jesus should surely covet to meet Him there. And finally, David models now the impact that God's Word should have upon our souls in verses 11 to 13. And moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. Because who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And then... I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David reveals the two-edged sword of the Scripture negatively. He, referring to himself or any believer, he is warned by them. Positively, there's great reward in keeping them. And that leads into his prayer because he's worried over undetected, that means by himself, his own faults that he can't even see. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. None of us are sharp enough to see and to expose all of our own inner goings on that are broken and sinful. We are much more undone and sinful than we normally give ourselves credit for. And so was David. And he's also concerned about known sinfulness. Because he's a sinner. He's, he's, he's concerned about when he willfully, consciously sins. Presumptuous. It's the, 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 the Hebrew word is arrogant. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm giving, I'm doing this. What he's referring to here are those sins that we all sin when we know we are sinning. He wants forgiveness from hidden sins. And here he says, I want protection from 
my sinning, that it doesn't overtake me, that it doesn't dominate me. That, that is my prideful, deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Paul would just say it this way. <laughs> Don't let your flesh overtake you and control you. Don't live in unrepentant sin. Walk by the Spirit. David pleads, don't let them have dominion over me. And the Word of God is producing that prayer. Why now? Because I thought about this as I'm reading. I just, okay, well, why, what's that, why is that next thing he says the way he says it? Why is that kind of praying important for David and for us? I'm pretty sure it's because of what he says next. You see the connector in the middle of verse 13. The word then. Then this will happen. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. That's what he does not ever want to commit, is the way I think we're supposed to take this. I want to be blameless from ever abandoning you. So continually protect me in my sin nature as I walk with you before your word. If the Lord clears him of, of guilt, of hidden sin, and the Lord is protecting, holding him back from arrogant sin that would refuse to Repent like David is known to do again and again. In other words, from this walk of presumptuousness on God, of non-repentant living. David, you do that for me, and I won't fall away from you. Which would be horrific. Or to put that in the terms of the New Testament, it goes like this in Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God because we, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. No wonder the Word of God is so desirable to David, sweeter than honey. Because those who belong to Jesus will never ultimately abandon Him and commit the great transgression. Precisely because... They take the warnings of the scriptures seriously. That's what he just said in verse 11 of our text. Moreover, 
by them is your servant warned. And so we pray with David, verse 14, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. And we plead in our own prayer closets. Keep back your servant also from arrogant, unrepentant sinning. Let my sins not have dominion over me. Or, like we're going to do in a moment, in corporate worship, we can say it in the words of the great hymn, Come Thou Fount. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let us stand together and sing it.